Good evening and welcome to PTSD 911 Presents. This is a podcast for first responders and those who support first responders. On this show, we talk about mental health and wellness for first responders. And our goal is to have deep conversations that inspire and motivate first responders to take care of themselves and their peers when it comes to their mental health. My name is Conrad Weaver. I'm so glad you stopped by to listen or to watch the show. If you're watching on YouTube, I encourage you to log in and let us know in the comments where you're from. And if you're a first responder or not, and while this show is pre-recorded, we do monitor and engage in the chat. So we'd love to connect. And if you haven't already subscribed, hit that subscribe button, whether you're watching on YouTube or listening on Apple Podcasts or another podcast app, please subscribe. That way you don't miss an episode. We'd also really like to know what you think about the show and how we could improve it. So please leave us a review. We'd appreciate it very much. Dennis Blocker the second is a trained EMT and a firefighter, and he spent 21 years as a trauma tech at a level one trauma center. Over those years, he kept the journal, which he turned into a book called Clear, which details his 23 years in emergency medicine and then his battle with PTSD that almost took his life. Dennis is a public speaker and is now doing all he can to bring awareness about PTSD in emergency medicine. Today's conversation is deep. It is. Uh, it has a lot of information in it. It has subject matter that may trigger some people. We talk about uh, some of the things that uh, Dennis seen has has seen and heard during his time at, in in the emergency room or at a trauma center. So, just be aware that there are things in this conversation today that uh, are pretty sensitive. So, I want you to be aware of that. Anyway. Here's my conversation with Dennis Blocker. Well, Dennis Blocker, welcome to PTSD 911. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's an honor. Very, thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit, for those who don't know who you are, tell me a little bit about who you are and what do you do? I was a military brat, Air Force brat. My dad was a cop and uh, in the Air Force was born in Inglewood, California. Of course, that means you travel a lot, and uh, which was a great experience. You know, we lived in Iceland and Guam and Michigan, California, Texas. And um, I will have to say, though, that when we got orders from Iceland to Texas, my mom cried. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> Just because of the change in temperatures. Um, but, um, you know, when I, I once upon a time I, I wanted to do mission work in Congo in uh, mm. Zaire back then it was Zaire uh, Obutu was the president then and uh, I took a trip there uh, to see if that's what I wanted to do we spent mm. a month in the jungles um, and uh, I solidified it I, I was 16 at the time and I was like this is what I want to do and mm. so I pursued a seminary degree and uh, I was injured though in the Congo and uh, mm. quite severely and I discovered how important medical was mm. because the only person medical with us was a veterinarian. And mm. um, I just had to tough it out. And you're three days into the jungle. That's wow. three solid 24 hour days, not three American 24 hour <laughs> days. But so it was, it was a, mm. you have to tough it out. And, uh, mm. and then in college in Oklahoma city, I was uh, sitting in class on April 19th, 1995. And I uh, had uh, my briefcase on my lap and um, it was, had my notepad out and getting ready to take notes. And um, 
it was 902 and the left side of mm. our classroom just went boom. Mm. And then over the rafters, you could hear boom, 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 boom. And then the opposite wall went boom. And the mm. glass just shimmered and uh, plaster was falling from the ceilings. And, you know, of course we went outside into the hallway and discovered that, you know, the Alfred P. Murrah building in downtown Oklahoma City had been bombed by Timothy McVeigh. And I'll never forget, uh, when we were looking at the news, one of the newscasters was sobbing and just mm. begging. We need all medical people downtown now, all medical people. And Conrad, that feeling of seeing three or four students pile into a car going off to help and me just standing there with nothing to give uh, mm. left quite an impression on me. And so I, I knew that I needed some medical uh, training. Uh, one, I was going to head off to the Congo, but two, I saw that you never know when something's going to happen. And, mm. and I never wanted to be that guy again, who was just left there standing with nothing to prove, you know, to give the community. Mm -hmm. an Do you think that is kind of uh, something that in the first responder community, that's a common thought that, Hey, I don't want to be that guy that's just standing there. That's a really good question. You know, on the, you know, when later when I was in the trauma team and I would orient someone, uh, we would see nurses who their whole life knew that that's what they wanted to do. They wanted mm -hmm. to be a nurse. They wanted to work trauma. And then you would see them two hours later clock out and go home uh, because there's 100 people in the waiting room waiting to come back. The wait time for patients is 24 hours. We've got 10 cop cars out in the ambulance bay, 15 ambulances, uh, psych patients lining the hallways, screaming, hitting each other. Uh, you've got gunshots coming in through the front, through the side doors. Um, and it was just, they realized that they didn't have it. And I'm mm. sure since interviewing all the people that you have, sir, that you know what it is. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that to your question that anyone who is in a situation and they have that urge and they hear that voice in the back of their mind or in their heart, that says you have to do something. That's where the paramedic is first born. That's where mm -hmm. the emergency trauma nurse is first born mm -hmm. right there. How soon after that event did you sign up to, to go you become an EMT? Well, I, at the time I was, a, had a scholarship with the college and, uh, <laughs> I was on a men's singing group. <laughs> and so the, uh, I had a scholarship to sing and we would, the you know, thing was, is we had to, to uh, give up our summer. And so, uh, which fine, I get to travel and cross the United States and see places I probably never would have seen and Canada. And, uh, um, so I couldn't do it that summer, but the very following the next summer, I, matter of fact, my sister and I did it together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But what was interesting was, and, and this really hit home. And I, and I think as an EMT, uh, and all the EMTs out there and paramedics would really. Uh, understand this, but our instructors in class were all firemen who had been down at the Alfred P. Murrah building. Wow. So that was, they had that experience and were able to, they were dead serious about teaching us, you know, that gave them quite a resolve. And in turn, that was, you know, imbued to us. So it was interesting that an event like that, and I think if you look back at what happened on 9-11, I think a lot of people joined the military 
because of that event. You know, there's it takes a tragedy for some to kind of propel someone into a new line of work or a new mission or new passion. And obviously that's where you went. You went to become, you know, a helper, right? Yes, sir. Uh, so what was that process like when you first started into was it what you expected when you first started studying, you know, emergency procedures? Was it what you expected or was it well, like, oh, this yeah, is something really different? Um, you know, you, you if you're worth your salt, you've done your research and um, you've, you, you're excited about it. And so you kind of have an inkling. Um, but the, what's in the back of your mind the whole time is you're just praying that you have it. Hmm. Like. I remember one of our, one of my uh, students, one of the students in there with us, uh, he had a photographic memory. So he aced every single test that we did. And then mm -hmm. he would get the bonus question. <laughs> and then uh, during these scenarios, he was able to pull up and he would just go down step by step, very sterile. But he was right. You know, mm -hmm. whereas me, you know, I'm getting 80, 82 on the tests and struggling. Because I'm also, you know, a full-time, uh, you know, student and I've got other obligations and working mm -hmm. full-time job and this and that. And, uh, you know, I'm struggling. But there's just, when he was in the field, he was not able to, when, when it was the real world, mm -hmm. um, he was not able to access those files. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. It, yeah. it was like fear had shunted his ability to access those files and whereas me and others we were able it just made us more clear and it mm. just it made it we, we became more zoned in on it and it was just flowed and we just jumped in and uh, that's and that's what's the danger of it right is that you don't know if you have that ability till you're there in the first part of your book you talk about that first call that you went on uh, when you were still in training i guess can you yes, describe right. that and what happened? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, uh, that was something else. Yeah. So you, you were able to kind of figure out a problem that you had. There was an upside down. Yeah. You know, that was and, really interesting. Um, uh, you know, the, and the shift was, you know, the saying in EMS is if you have a student, nothing's going to happen. <laughs> and, uh, and it's, it's kind of like you have a ride along. Event. Like I do ride alongs whenever I ride along, nothing happens. <laughs> that's exactly right. It's exactly right. If you have a ride along, that's why paramedics love ride alongs because <laughs> they're going to finally get to eat. They're going <laughs> to catch up on documentation on patients and this and that. Um, <laughs> And uh, so one of my paramedics that were had me that day with uh, the service there at Bethany, Oklahoma, uh, you know, they were really excited to have me that day. And uh, sure enough, nothing, you know, mm -hmm. hour after hour after hour. And, uh, you know, of course, I'm just dying. You know, <laughs> I'm just like, this is insane. And then uh, in the wee hours of the morning, the tones went off and uh, their pagers and we got a call to a, a vehicle out uh, in the um, rural area that had rolled off the the highway and what was interesting about it was that it had rolled uphill and then momentum and gravity then fought each other to a standstill <laughs> and then it rolled back downhill but on its turn the last of its turns he flew out the window mm. and uh, he was pinned underneath the uh, the hood of the truck and mm -hmm. but the car the truck was at an angle resting against a tree that as we approached was creaking mm. um it was a really difficult situation, and um, I, I, I vividly recall, uh, and all first responders will will attest to this, 
Um, I, I vividly recall the smell of the decay of the forest, hmm. of the diesel in the grass, the cool, crisp air, the strobes bouncing off the bushes, um, and then this hum of the generator as they put the lights on the scene and they secured straps to the vehicle and they secured the scene for us. And then that's when I saw that, you know what, if doing the math and if, if I crawl under here, his foot should be right there because that's the only thing that was pinning him was his lower his lower leg. And uh, so I just mentioned it to one of the, the fire captain there. And he said, yeah, let's do it. So I just jumped out. I didn't wait. I just jumped underneath the vehicle like a crazy person. And um, I just started digging. And then they got me some tools and we got them out. Mm-hmm. And there's no greater feeling than someone that you respect, especially, uh, you know, young men especially will be able to identify, you know, when when you get that clap on the back from an older man who says, great job. You know, that's mm-hmm. something we'll never forget. And mm-hmm. that has been, you know, decades ago yeah yeah <laughs> still remember it. so that was really the launch of your career in yes, uh, emergency services so um you don't have to go into all the details but you en- ended up uh you know going to work in that field and then you uh kind of had some advanced degrees as well to kind of tell us a little yes, bit about and, your journey there yes um so then i you know when i went back home to uh san antonio and um i by that time, um, Africa had closed, that part of Africa had closed down uh, civil wars and whatnot. And uh, so that wasn't an option anymore. And then my life goals sort of changed and started pursuing other things. And um, I got on with EMS back in San Antonio then. Uh, then I got onto a volunteer fire department and we went to the fire academy. And that's when I, I got some exposure to, because you know we were rural, um, they gave me a pager and a medical bag and an oxygen tank and trial bag. And they gave me a, uh, a red light with a magnet on it. And they put a siren on my, my little, uh, Chevy Cavalier. <laughs> and, uh, so I was an official woo woo. <laughs> and, uh, they said, you know, when you get a call, go, you're the closest <laughs> it's in your neighborhoods. So, and that was, uh, that was very interesting. Cause I, I had several interesting calls and, you know, in that time was that more uh, as a volunteer or was that was a volunteer? Totally, yes sir that was all volunteer mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i have a lot of respect for for volunteer firefighters and and medics just because i i live in a small i live in emmitsburg maryland where is the home of the national fire academy national emergency training center and our firehouse here is pretty much all volunteers there's a couple uh emts that are full-time staff but uh m- most everybody else is volunteer and, uh, and the siren still goes off, you know, even though they don't necessarily need it because of modern technology. But, you know, when the siren goes off at 2.30 in the morning, it wakes me up and I'm like, those guys are jumping out of bed going to a call, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm yeah. safe and comfortable in my warm bed, you know. Yes, so I have a lot of respect for volunteers who, you know, leave their home. Sometimes they leave, you know, family functions and all the other things that goes on with life to take care of someone else's emergency. So, yes, sir. Yeah. I would be in the shower and the pager. I remember the pager went off. I was in the shower and, uh, it was in the early morning hours, maybe 9am. And, uh, I was off that day and it was a structure fire. So I just jumped out and, uh, still dripping wet, threw on my clothes, 
sprinted uh, to the uh, fire station and uh, it was just me and another guy, hmm. you know, and he was an active uh, San Antonio fireman. And uh, so he did that on the side and, and it was just, it was just him and I, and we topped the hill and on the distance on the horizon, you just see this giant pillar of smoke coming from the middle <laughs> of the subdivision. And we just hooped and hollered like Braveheart on the hill. <laughs> <laughs> it's insane when you think about it it's like two guys you know right <laughs> so uh we, we put the call out you know just meet us at the scene and uh i was the uh i was the nozzle man the first guy through the door and uh it was yeah it was, <laughs> it was mm. something else yeah so how did you then make the transition into into um you know trauma into the trauma unit um, my other job was EM, uh, EMS and ambulance and, uh, my partner, my paramedic partner recommended that I try the trauma because he knew mm -hmm. I wanted to expand my, uh, knowledge and experience. So, um, he had worked there previously and he put in a good word for me. And, um, I just showed up one day and talked to the boss and they said, yeah, come on, take you on uh, part-time. So that was mm -hmm. my, uh, you know, I thought I was going to go in and just immediately knock it out of the park mm. and uh no mm. <laughs> that's not how it goes <laughs> so how does I it go for, for those of us who are uninitiated how does it go <laughs> so the beauty of ems is you you get to drop off <laughs> the patient <laughs> you stand at the door you know take care <laughs> yeah, right <laughs> and then you go out and you uh, clean your unit and you get ready for the next call. Mm -hmm. Well, the ER, you know, they are, they got them. Yeah. You know, they got them. So they go home They're whatever state they're in or whether they're covered in whatever kind of human fluids or uh, whatever's happened to them. They're the ones that have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And that was quite eye opening for me because just the sheer numbers of people um, the chaos of the trauma county level one trauma center, the screaming everywhere and the uh, police running down the halls. You could hear all their keys, especially the hospital police. They got like 50,000 keys. And I just vividly recall that shh, 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 as they're <laughs> running down the halls. And that's how you know something's going on because they never ran anywhere. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, just all of that. And, and that's a big test on you, whether or not, because one, I, re I remember there was this nurse, uh, Peggy Spriggs, she's from Canada. She was, she was a, a, a Jedi master. She was just amazing. And I remember we had this code come in and she turns to me and hands me this syringe of blood and says, get me a CVC, PT, PTT, Chem 13, INR, and a type and screen. And I'm just staring at her. <laughs> and she goes, points to the cart and goes, Blue top, purple top, green top, pink top. I'm like, okay, that's fireman proof. I can do that. <laughs> so I was like, colors I can do, you know. <laughs> so it was definitely on-the-job training. And mm -hmm. uh, they wanted medics because we had the field experience and we knew dealing with folks. Um, but there was definitely a learning curve. You had to learn splints and uh, all that, and especially in the trauma room. And I'm I, I hope I'm not going to disgust anyone, but I would get the runs when I knew I was going to be in the trauma room from my mm -hmm. next shift, uh, just because I knew that I didn't know Jack. And uh, there were these folks had 
seconds to live sometimes. And mm -hmm. uh, of course, they never just left me alone in there because mm -hmm. they, they knew I didn't know anything. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if you have anything, if you're worth your salt, you want to make a difference. Right. Mm -hmm. And you want to be a factor. And that is a theme very evident in my book about being a factor. And um, I didn't want to just collect a paycheck. And, you know, it was interesting. Sometimes we would have to tackle folks. I, I remember one case where a guy was beating up a sheriff deputy and a policeman and mm. uh, me and an orientee of mine who he was, had been a, a army ranger. We turned a corner and saw the police were losing. And matter of fact, uh, the assailant had uh, the police officer's thigh in his mouth mm. and he had the deputy, female deputy in a headlock. And then he swooped his hand down and he had his hand on the pistol grip of her weapon mm. and was yanking on it, trying to get it out. And uh, so he and I had to step in and take care of the situation, you know, and mm. everything that that entailed. But, you know, you're doing that. And then five minutes later in the level one trauma center, you're w stepping into a room and uh, good morning, Mrs. Johnson. I'm going <laughs> to go ahead and get your blood pressure. And uh, oh, I'm sorry, I'll speak louder. You can't hear me. OK, <laughs> my name is Dennis. I'm one of the medics here. We're, you know what I'm saying? And you're just transitioning from you were just about to die mm -hmm. to let's get Miss Johnson to the restroom because she doesn't want to soil her herself. You know, mm -hmm. what's that do to your mind and your 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 mind, your thought process? Um, when, when you're young, you're super stoked because you realize that you're the tip of the spear. You know, the trauma level one is the, um, medical's equivalent of the special forces, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not for everybody. And we, on January 1st, that I always worked New Year's. I, re I requested New Year's night mm -hmm. because it was going to be the wild west and I absolutely loved it. So the following morning, we would always go to Chacho's in the morning and we would order what's called King Kong nachos and it covers the whole plate. So you got the whole trauma team around this, this, uh, and then the margaritas are coming out hmm. and, uh, you know, then other ERs are coming in cause it's in the medical center. And then, you know, Methodist shows up and Baptist shows up hmm. and Saint Santa Rosa shows up and they all look over us. And they're like, you guys are university, aren't you? And we're like, yeah, this that we can tell. <laughs> yeah it's just a whole new ball game and it's the uh it's the alphas you know there's no betas there um it's they're all alphas and i had this thing this kind of a joke that i would say about that i wish that the great steve Irwin had done a crocodile hunter episode in the er <laughs> and i could picture him kind of creeping through the ambulance bay looking left and white right and <laughs> looking back at his cameraman and saying easy mike this is the land of the alpha female. <laughs> Crikey. <laughs> Crikey. <laughs> because I'll tell you what, I have seen, I have seen a, we used to call them the hobbits. There were these two nurses. They were about four foot 10. Um, and I saw her leap over a rail and jump on top of a, a guy who was strangling a nurse. Hmm. and uh just this fire and zest just incredible heart you know just mm -hmm. just getting after it <laughs> it's mm -hmm. just that's an you know you you look back on it and you just thank your lucky stars you had the opportunity to meet such people and mm -hmm. work with them 
Yeah. Kind of, kind of takes me back to my days working in a psychiatric hospital and my my kind of fresh out of college. I had a degree in psychology, had an opportunity to work in an adolescent program in a, in a pretty big hospital system in South Carolina. And, um, being a male in a psychiatric hospital, you get called to all the fun stuff and, you know, all the combative exactly adult right. patients, you know, over in the, the lockup unit. And, and I remember coming home many times, black and blue, just from mm-hmm. the, the stuff that went down. And so obviously it's nothing like the trauma center. We didn't have blood and guts everywhere, but we had, you know, psychosis. No, but there's and, something, uh, Conrad, there's something about working in an environment where, it does something to your mind where mm-hmm. you're, you're, you know, you're there to help people mm-hmm. and it does something too. I, at least it did to me. It really does something inside your heart and your mind when you get punched mm-hmm. and, uh, in an environment where you're trying to help. Right. And, uh, it's most of the time it's uncalled for, you know, it was the quiet ones that I worried about. It wasn't mm-hmm. the ones that were saying, I'm the devil, I'm the devil. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not, that's not the one I'm worried about. The one I'm worried yeah. about is the guy who's just sitting there super quiet and stewing. And, mm-hmm. uh, you could see the things that are, he's thinking about it must mm-hmm. be, you know, and, uh, yeah. So I understand, you know, you, if you go home black, black and blue, um, you have that evidence every day of, mm-hmm. <laughs> You get to look at it and think about it. Yeah. What did, what did all those experiences do to you? Well, you know, in the beginning, you know, you're young and you're in your twenties and you're all alphas and you're, you're handling business. You're, you brag about it you laugh, but, um, it starts to accumulate, Hmm. you know, especially the death of children. Hmm. Um, can I show this to you? Uh, this Mm -hmm. is a, uh, a journal that I started keeping when I was uh, in, it's when I first started there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I kept the journal because I, I wanted, I realized early on that um, I was going to witness uh, things that were going to change me forever. Mm-hmm. And there were things that I didn't want to forget. Um, and so here, um, you see that obituary? Yeah. That's from 1998. That's Danielle Reyna Reynosa. And that little sticker right there, uh, I had given to her brother who was standing beside her as they were viewing her body and her family. Uh, they were hit by a drunk driver. And when I was uh, cleaning the gray matter, her brains out of her hair and uh, getting her ready uh, to be viewed, um, I something happened in me, you know, and... The way I explained it to my mom and dad, because over time, then they started asking me, you know, what happened to your joy? Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, I, I didn't really understand how to tell them, but they, you know, they kept after it because they are good, great parents. And uh, so finally, one day I was just kind of angry and I, and I says, all right, you want to know? I'll, I didn't say it out loud, but I thought, you know, all right, you want to know? I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I says, you know, you guys provided us tremendous life great parents, tons of love and the morals and the courage and the character, all the lessons that they taught us, the way I described it to them was like, they had given us a a protective shield around my heart. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was going to be the thing that was going to always keep me on the right course. It was going to help me make the right decisions. Um, It was going to protect who I was. And that when I 
when I uh, when I cleaned the brains, this young girl, you know, when I cleaned her brains out of her hair and I got her her ready for her families to come view her. Um, I told my parents, I says, you know, there was, it, uh, the best way I could describe it was that there was a, a dark, I just call it a, a darkness at the time, but I would later describe it as a dark passenger, um, where, like that show Dexter on Showtime, uh, how he described it. But it was uh, an invisible chisel, very small, and an invisible hammer. And that dark hand went up to my, that guard and just went pop one time and a little tiny fleck flew off i didn't know what happened it was imperceptible but it did fly off into oblivion and it would never be replaced and that happened over and over and over again because <clears throat> one thing about ems is that you're going to get bad calls but you know for most departments not all but most departments it's going to be the really bad ones are going to be once a month, maybe a couple times a month. But in the trauma center, that's mm -hmm. what you do, mm -hmm. you know, and it's just day after day after day. And um, your joy dissipates it, it, that. And then eventually that that guard is has a tiny hole that's gone all the way through and it starts to seep in with this black, oily darkness that um, you start withdrawing from family. You start withdrawing from friends. Uh, you don't no longer want to hang out and do stuff. You'd rather just be by yourself. And mm. uh, that's dangerous. That's Did dangerous. you lose the joy for the work? Well, you know, that's interesting, Conrad, because, you know, I'm a blocker. So we have this work ethic, you know, and we are always mindful of doing our best no matter what, uh, even if we don't agree with the mission. Um, we're going to do our best every single time. So even though I would have that darkness and I would be showering and getting ready for the shift and I'd be nauseous knowing that I was going to be uh, seeing more death because uh, your cup does get full. Mm -hmm. And um, I would just, you know, you're passing your daughter's bedrooms to go to the car and that serves to remind you that you have to go to work. Mm -hmm. You can't call in. You have to go. And then, you know, people say, we'll get another job. But this is all I've ever done. You know, this is what I know. This is what I'm good at. And I know that I can save people. And I love taking care of really sick people. Uh, and it's a vicious cycle because you're good at it. You love doing it. But it's, you know, Conrad, my uh, counselor would later describe my job as a golden coffin. She hmm. said, you're caught your job is a golden coffin because it provides everything you need for your family and your life, but it's, it's going to kill you. Hmm. And, um, yeah, that was a big revelation. I, I would, you know, driving into work towards the end there, um, when I had to retire from the ER, <clears throat> one of my last shifts, I vividly recall looking up at the parking garage at the, in the hospital district and thinking that if I stepped off of that parking garage, that my mind would finally be at rest. Hmm. It wasn't a matter of depression or anything like that. It was just that when I was at night, I was having nightmares all night long. And I, my girls, Lauren would wake me up 
and daddy, you're screaming, you know, you're yelling. And, you know, so you're, you're, you're not resting. And then you're working a 12 hour shift in the trauma and you're on your feet and, um, you just, you just want rest. Mm -hmm. It's not, if I could describe it any way, I would say that that thought of jumping off of that garage was more of just that I'll finally be at peace. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll finally be able to get some rest. And that scared me mm-hmm. because it made sense. It sounded legitimate, like a great idea. Mm-hmm. And that scared me. And um, did those kind of thoughts and um, things that kind of came through your mind, did, did they affect your, your work? Did they affect, you know, how you did your job? No, they didn't, but they definitely uh, affected um, the way I trained uh, new people. Um, I, I became almost desperate in my training, trying to get them ready, trying to give them the... I didn't have any good advice at the time, and that's one of the reasons for my book, was there was no education on mental health and, and how to process what we're seeing. Uh, it wasn't until the final couple of weeks that I talked to a counselor who um, gave me the tools that reprogrammed how I was processing what I was thinking about and what had been bothering me. Uh, so I was doing my best trying to train the new people and uh, desperately prepare them so that they could last. Mm. And um, you almost feel sorry for them because, you know, I you know, not, sweet people would would become employees of the ER and you would see that joy and they were bouncy and effervescent and running here and there and just this joy on their face when they would come in and you feel sad mm-hmm. because you know it's going to go away mm-hmm. and you don't want it to because you don't want them to change. And uh, one nurse in particular, Kim, I just begged her, please don't stay. Like, get your get your couple years in so you get this experience. But and she did leave and uh, she's so glad that she did. But uh, she went to the OR and are there people who kind of spend their career there? Oh yes, they did us. There's nurses like Peggy, 40 something years. Wow. You know, there's there are nurses that can do it for 40 years. They just have that ability to it's really remarkable when you think about it. Hmm. You know, what do you think it is that you know, causes someone to be able to do that, to spend, you know, a whole career in that kind of environment and, and still be able to do the job effectively. I think they're, they're successful because they right from the beginning, remove themselves from the situation. Like they perform the tasks, but they don't, they don't associate their family with what's going on. Mm. For instance, if, a nightmare that I always have and still have is from time to time now, it's not as prevalent, but is a 10 year old girl with long blonde hair. And uh, when I repaired her body, she had been um, uh, suffocated by a dog Mm. and um, it just latched on her throat and crushed her, her airway and we couldn't get her back. But I think the reason that I, that I would have nightmares of her is because she reminded me of my daughter. And I think those nurses that really last a long time and the paramedics that can do it forever, uh, I think that um, they're able to not associate it with anything in their life. They just have this ability to, and it's tough because 
let's face it, you as a patient, you want the nurse that is empathetic, mm-hmm. right? You don't want some hard-nosed nurse ratchet coming in and, you know, slinging you around their bed and this and that and being rough with you. You know, you want someone coming in who's gentle and listens to your story and 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 identifies with you and says, oh, my mother does the same thing. You know, those kind of mm-hmm. things that you can, you know, and put people at ease, right? That's the kind of healthcare person that you want. And that's what I want it to be. Mm-hmm. But it's that empathy that is who I am, but it's also the gateway to uh, mm. a disaster because mm-hmm. you are identifying and it's hard not to. It's so hard not to. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of resources did the the hospital have for you, uh, if any, regarding mental health and wellness? Uh, there were none. Hmm. Yeah, there was none. Uh, it's interesting. I, I, I'm on a Facebook page called Emergency Departments Are for Emergencies Only. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, it started by an English doctor. And it's got, I think, 78,000 uh, emergency personnel from Australia, New Zealand, America. It's just amazing. And uh, a new nurse posted on there. We had a difficult code last night. And we they didn't didn't want to do a debrief because... We were too busy. Does anyone have any ideas on what we can do to make mm-hmm. this happen? And there were over, I mean, you can imagine the responses mm-hmm. that came in. And uh, they, I actually started creating a document, a Word document, copy pasting the different cities or different countries and states that the responses were coming from and what they were saying. And basically, the main theme was is that just one, one theme was we just go home and drink mm-hmm. or... Another one was uh, tough, you know, stiff upper lip. Let's keep going. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is how it is. Um, and there were maybe 5% that were there. They had, were actually worked in a facility that had a program. Mm. Wow. So that's the, that's the culture. It was a, um, as a matter of fact, my first day in the trauma, when I was introduced to the sh- the staff for the first day, they said, uh, I'll never forget it. And, Hello. Hey guys, this is uh, Dennis. I want to introduce him to you guys. Uh, this is his first day, so let's say hi. And the calls that came out was "Welcome to Nam." Hmm. You know, you'll be sorry, just like the military. And what I what really stood out to me that day was were their eyes. Hmm. Right, their eyes really stood out to me because they were hollow and uh, dark circles, and um, there was. I would, I knew that this was a whole new group of people I was working with. And, um, that culture of welcome to Nam is tough it out, stick it out, just deal with it. Let's all go drinking in the morning. Um, it's the same for fire departments, uh, police, uh, the guys just, just drink a lot, alcoholics, a lot of divorce, mm-hmm. uh, because they're, they're dealing with it by drinking and, they, you'll know you have a problem when you get home and you're angry <clears throat> you're angry and your anger doesn't match the situation mm. like your 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 two-year-old uh is a two-year-old they're crying and you just blow up right mm. it's like well the two-year-old doesn't understand that you want to watch the show mm-hmm. you know <laughs> like it, the the anger doesn't match the situation and 10 years before you would have dealt with it fine so yeah, that's a big sign that you are you've got some major problems going on, and you need to talk mm-hmm. to a counselor. At what point did you know that you had some problems going on that you needed to get some help? 
Yeah, interestingly, I knew it was I knew it was a problem probably ten years into it, uh, and I still had eleven years to go. I didn't know it then, but uh, I did leave the trauma team, trying to help myself by going to a smaller ER. But what I hadn't counted on was because of my experience working trauma uh, as a medic. When I went to this new smaller ER, they leaned on me heavily. Uh, as a matter of fact, my when I first showed up and they they uh, the director interviewed me, she asked what kind of experience I had. I says, well, I can, you know, I can run the eight and a half French cordis. I can get you an art line. I can get you CVP monitoring. I can get you a level one rapid infuser. I know how to work a Lucas. I, and I just listed all this stuff and her mouth dropped. And she looked over at the paramedic who was sitting there, who was also a medic in that department already. And they were looking at each other. And then she looked at me and she was like, can you train us on how to do that stuff? Hmm. And so that, that, uh, that's the, well, that was the theme of that place was that I was then leaned on heavily. Uh, because of the experience level. And so anytime anything went down, you know, I had to step in, but I was there to rest, you know, <laughs> I was there to, but I, it didn't work out. Was the call way. volume just as heavy as the other, as the trauma center? The call volume was not as heavy. No, mm -hmm. no, thankfully. But, you know, in my book, I do list the cases that were there. Um, there's a lot of stuff that you can't put in because it, you'd have to get, too descriptive with mm. the details and then people sure. would be able to say, well, that was me. Mm. You know, so you got to do it. You respect HIPAA, but, mm. um, you know, being leaned on heavily. And, and this is the, another problem was, is that the ER was responsible for responding to code blues in that hospital, the entire hospital. Mm. So if the ICU had someone that was going downhill or had CPR in progress, the ER responded, well, that's me and a nurse and the ER doc. And mm. we go up there and I'm not kidding, Conrad. Your room would be full of people. And when the ER would show up, they would like Moses in the Red Sea, they would part. And then we would go up there and start dropping IVs in them and getting meds pushed and IVs and CPR and this and that. And, you know, everybody's clapping us on the back when we're walking out, but they don't realize, you know, what's going on inside you, you know, but, but you keep doing it. You mm -hmm. know, you just keep doing it. You got a family to feed. Do these do do talking about these things and thinking about these things kind of bring up some some of that darkness that you talked about earlier, even now? You know, it's it, I, I find it cathartic now. It's like plus it's it's a way to educate the public about what's happening. Like your nurse that's stepping into your room, she's professional. She looks sharp. She or he is uh, they're extremely knowledgeable and they're friendly. Uh, good morning, Ms. Smith. Um, my name is so-and-so. I'm going to start your IV or get your medications. The doctor's already ordered your, your uh, uh, IV drip. I'm going to get that started. Um, CAT scan has been ordered. They have been notified. They tell us that you're third in line. So we're looking at maybe 30 minutes. Well, that patient is like, man, this place is amazing. And this nurse is really amazing. But that nurse, just one of her other patients, uh, she was just doing CPR on. Hmm you know, and lost. And she's grieving because she got to know the family a little bit. And the person died right in front of them. You know, they were talking about what they're going to do in the summer. And uh, with their grandkids coming into town, all of a sudden they clutch their chest and it's the big one. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're gone. And then she goes to the bathroom, cries a little bit, touches up her makeup, 
and then steps into room four. Good morning, Mrs. Smith. My name is so-and-so. I'm going to get your IV and, you know, so forth. Mm. So that's why I would tell those stories was so that the general public would know that when you're sitting in the waiting room, it's hard not to get angry mm. <laughs> right. at the wait time. Mm-hmm. And um, my book is it was designed really to educate the public on this is what's going on back behind the doors um, that no one wants you to sit there as long as you're sitting there. And they have actual panels <laughs> designed mm-hmm. of folks, me and everybody else designed to make it faster for you. Mm-hmm. Like this is something we actively seek to make your experience quicker, but we cannot jeopardize your safety mm-hmm. uh, by making it too fast. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's part of the, thing is educating and and telling those stories it was really cathartic especially when you're sitting around with a bunch of medics or nurses and you start telling war stories uh um i remember once uh we were me and a buddy were getting into an er on the 10th floor of the hospital and we just pushed our stretcher and then this guy was walking with uh from another floor and he was trying to show off for this girl that he was with and i i was particularly bitter on this day and uh he 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 says, hey, what's the toughest, what's this, you know, he didn't realize I had worked at university. This mm. is at the other hospital. He says, uh, what's the weirdest thing you ever saw? And he's kind of smirking. And I said, uh, I had a mom who ate her baby. And then the door closed. <laughs> she was like, mic drop, you know. <laughs> so, and just the fact that, mm. you know, and we laughed. But then just, you, you think about that in context. Mm. What are we laughing about? Mm-hmm. Like, what has happened to us, you know? It's, and I'll tell you this, Conrad, my, uh, my aunt Marsha passed away this morning and, mm, um, I'm sorry to hear that yesterday. My dad, uh, it's my dad's sister. Um, he, and we knew it was going to happen, but, uh, my dad asked me, I asked my dad last night, Hey, and this is not a proud moment. Not at all. Uh, I was walking out the door and I looked at my dad. I said, Hey, his aunt, um, is Aunt, did Aunt Marcia kick the bucket or is she still with us? And then I just froze and uh, I, I, I saw his face and I had to apologize. I said, I'm, I'm so sorry, Dad. I, that just came right out of the ER. Like that just came from some dark place. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's been, you know, two and a half years since I've worked EMS and all that stuff. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's what happens. You get so callous towards death. It's even your own family, you know, my aunt Marshall, I love, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you, what do you hope the book can accomplish for people who read it? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, my dream would be to get that book into the hands of all leadership, fire, police, EMS, um, hospital, because I wrote an article on April 12th. It was published in GEMS magazine. Are you familiar with GEMS, the Journal of Emergency no, I'm not. Services? Mm. It's um, national. Um, and I remember like all the fire departments would have the magazine back when they published. They don't publish anymore. It's just internet. But uh, I did an article for them. It was called Leadership Own Your Responsibility. And um, I'm challenging leadership to take responsibility for the mental well being of their employees. You know, it, it, it's like a conveyor belt of there's always someone that can take your place, right? No one's irreplaceable. But do, do, do leaders have the character to care about their people? 
you know. And I, in the article, I say that our leadership would have uh, uh, nurses week or emergency medical services week, and they would any EMS crews that came in, they would have you know pancakes or nacho bar, this and that, to show appreciation. And the same for us, we would have these amazing uh, Jason's Deli buffets, and and so we always felt, Conrad, we always felt appreciated. Mm. Not once would I ever not feel appreciated, but nothing there that took care of my. I need to be appreciated part, but was never addressed was the PTSD part, mm-hmm. the mental health. And that's what my book is challenging. I want to challenge leadership. Take ownership of your folks. They are working their butts off for you. Nurses are skipping lunches. They're taking five minutes for lunch if they even take a lunch and they get right back out on the floor. Now their shift is 645 to 7.15, but they're not leaving Mm -hmm. until 8.30. Why? Because they're tremendous people and they're leaving a clean department and they're documenting and they're having a great shift report and turnover. Um, But what are we doing for their mental well-being? How much, I wonder how much more we could have got out of these tremendous people with this tremendous experience. Just even myself, for instance, 21 years, like, if I had the tools in the beginning, hmm. how much longer could I have made it in that field? We, the, the average is two to four years hmm. and then people move on, but you're losing that experience hmm. level. You know, if they had the tools to process what they're seeing and what they're experiencing, how much longer could they last? And then how much more productive? And then that impacts the family life. You know, it'd be you interesting to, to do a study to see if, the the work length span of uh, uh, you know people in the in a trauma unit has shortened over the years you know versus you know today versus twenty years ago how long are people working are they working less time are they moving on quicker uh, it'd be interesting to study My that gosh, I would love to see those stats yeah. Mm. I would love to see those stats. And over and the, over the years, a tracker. over your experience, sorry, has has did, did the ER change? I mean, you today we have more and more people without insurance, and they use the ER as their doctor. Uh, you know, have you seen that kind of thing change and and make uh, the ER, even trauma center, a busier place because of that? Absolutely, absolutely, and. This last uh, ER that I worked at, um, it, it, it's it's the one ER. I worked in three trauma, and then the other two. But it's the one ER where absolutely every staff member bought in on a hundred and fifty percent every day. So um, they really got it down with their procedures from when you first check in. It is streamlined and. Sadly, and this is a big complaint, Conrad, a big complaint is that nurses no longer, nurses enjoy being able to put a hand on a shoulder. Um, I remember Peggy, remember I mentioned Peggy earlier, Mm -hmm. nurse. Uh, We were getting crushed one day. I mean, just one after another. And there was an elderly woman who was dying. And uh, her family had called from out of state and said that, just to cease all operations that they would be there this something like that i had some kind of a thing and they were going to let her go and we just kept on working you know 
and here's this lady who had this long life and these experiences and raised children and had grandchildren and and she's just on this lone cold stretcher with this light just right in her face up from up above and you know what peggy did she walked over there even though we were getting killed even though she was getting killed she walked over and she went to her locker she got a brush out her own brush She started brushing her hair and <clears throat> she just sat in a chair beside her and said, uh, just talking to her, talking about what a wonderful life she must have had and uh, um, the wonderful things that she must have seen in the, seen in the span of life that she had, the changes in air transportation. And she was going through World War II and all of the, the 50, and she just took her on this journey. Hmm. And caressing her hair, um, caressing her cheek, tucked her in, brought her sheets up, made a little crease in them, put her arms on it like she had been tucked in by her mom. She taught us a lesson that day. She didn't have to say nothing. She taught us a lesson. That, hmm. Sure, we're getting people through fast, but we're losing that human element. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's dangerous because then you get cold. Mm hmm yeah. What is broken about our medical system and what, what needs to change to make things uh, get to a better place? Mental health, not, not for medical staff, but for the public. Mm -hmm. um, a large majority of our clientele were there um, with mental health issues and the funding had been had been lost by several agencies in town and our department was just inundated. Mm. And as you know, from your experience, they require a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. And they, if you leave psych patients, and, and I hope that's not disrespectful saying it that way, but if you leave them in a room together, they start feeding off of each mm. other with their energy. And uh, it gets super dangerous. And so you're having to devote so many resources and staff. You know, typically as somebody who tried to strangle their grandmother uh, should be a one-to-one. -one. You know what that means? Like mm -hmm. one person, yep. Yep. you know, you're sitting on them, keeping an eye on them. Sure. But we would have one to 14, hmm. you know. Wow. And uh, it's just dangerous. And because we couldn't spare the staff, um, you know, there's, there's just with the cost of everything, there's just, there's just no other way. The ER is just going to have to be the clinic for everybody. Mm -hmm. It's just going to have to be that. And, and we've all accepted it. Mm -hmm. um, there's no illusions about what we're going to, what not me anymore, but what they face. Mm -hmm. It's just good the way it's going to be. So I want to ask this and if this makes you uncomfortable, that's, you know, I'm, uh, I apologize ahead of time, but uh, you obviously were a person of faith and you were going off and you're hope, hoping to go off to seminary. How did, your experience uh, working in trauma affect your faith? That's a good question. Um, working in trauma made me realize because I had gone to a independent fundamental Baptist college. And you know what that means? Yeah. <laughs> I grew up in the church so and I understand I, those things. So yeah. Yeah. So that's extreme, right? Yeah. That's extreme. So, uh, most of my buddies, when they got married, when they kissed their 
wife, that was the first time they had ever kissed a girl. It was on their wedding day. When I came from that background of uh, everything is black and white, well, now I'm in the county ER, and now all of a sudden I'm working beside, you know, uh, folks who are gay. I didn't even know anybody who was gay before. Mm-hmm. And I guess what, Conrad? I found out they're not snatching people off the streets. <laughs> they're not snatching little children off and molesting them. I found out that Tabitha, she's pretty freaking awesome. Like, she's freaking brilliant. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, she's cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, it challenged it challenged a lot of things that I had been uh, thinking about. You know? mm-hmm. So as far as my faith goes, a lot of my beliefs had been challenged. Um, however... And by the way, I'm so thankful for that because, you know, when I eventually or later got married, you know, one of my groomsmen was gay and uh, I, it just grew me up. Mm-hmm. I'm so thankful for that. Um, but there were times, though, when I was in the ER, when I, you know, you see all the folks that are uh, say that they're the devil or mm-hmm. this or that. And mm-hmm. They act a certain way to to get attention. But there were thousands of those. There were a couple. <laughs> There were a couple where I was like, the hair on the back of your neck stands yeah. up and uh, they, there's three or four voices coming out of their mm-hmm. mouth at the same time. And uh, that's real. I've seen mm-hmm. it. And uh, you know you're dealing with something that's ancient. Yeah. And I never went into those situations boastful. Mm-hmm. You know, I never went in prideful mm-hmm. and thinking, I'm going to make a difference in here and I'm going to show the devil. Right, right. No. Yeah. <laughs> you go yeah. in humble or you're going to get hurt. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, but it solidified my belief, my, my faith. definitely. Mm-hmm. What did taking time to write your book, what did that do for you in your thought processes in your, in your, your journey toward wellness? It took me about a, a good year and a half before I could put quote pen to ink or, you know, ink to paper, you know, it took me a while. Um, just because the thought of it would make me nauseous, physically nauseous. Um, I knew at one point I was going to do it, so I had notes all over the place that, as little reminders that I wouldn't forget stories. Uh, and that's where my journal came in handy. Um, but when I started, when I had made, and this is really interesting too, uh, my girlfriend, because uh, uh, of, because of my PTSD and all that, I eventually ended up having to get, we got divorced and this and that, because mm-hmm. of the things that happened. And it was just... And uh, my current girlfriend now, um, I was telling her how to have all these books that I want to write. You know, I, I did two with my dad about his time in Iraq and Afghanistan with war dogs. I did one with Pulitzer Prize winning author Mitch Weiss about my grandpa in World War II and Iwo Jima. And then I said, okay, I got those done and I got, I want, I want to do these other ones. I want to do another World War II one. I want to do one about Africa and I want to do one about my ER experiences. And she's like, well, which one do you think you'll do first? And I was like, I just can't make up my mind. So she said, I'll tell you what, why don't you go on YouTube and Google this guy. His name is Muji. And he, do you know who mm, Muji is? No. And uh, he's uh, a spiritualist. Uh, um, he did a lot of training in India mm-hmm. and um, China. And uh, she said, just uh, Google him and just listen to what he has to say. The room totally dark, lay in your bed totally relaxed, arms outstretched, legs outstretched, just 
release your breath a couple times, deep breaths, and then hit play. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I'm Texas. Like this is uh, this is some hippie stuff here. I don't know. <laughs> so, but I I and this is something that came from the ER was that I don't know everything, mm. right? This life experience, and uh, I was like, well, what I'm doing obviously isn't working, right? So I'm I'll try. So I <laughs> lay down my bed. I hit play, and Muji uh, starts talking, and uh, I start doing, thinking about what he's telling me to think about. Let go of what he's telling me, let go of. And Conrad, I just went, ER. Hmm. And I just hopped out of bed, called her immediately, and was like, it's the ER. And then I just, from that point on, I had this piece about writing it, and it just flowed out of me, and it was just perfect. Hmm. And, um, it was very cathartic. Um, but you know, there were times though, you know, especially reading, cause what I would do is I would write a chapter and then read it to my family, mm. or read it to her mm. and then I would cry, mm. you know, uh, cry really hard. And to me, it's like honoring them, the memory of those folks, you know, and, uh, I guess I don't ever want to get to the point where it doesn't bother me or, you know, I, I just, I, I just always want to remember, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. what do you do you know, today to take care of yourself uh, and your mental health? So I, I listen to a lot of um, music that's uh, almost like new age mm -hmm. and very peaceful. And um, uh, I do a lot of outdoor stuff, connect with uh, a lot of outside um, Alaska is one of my favorite places mm. on the planet and uh, I go to Alaska a lot and uh, I'll just sit in the grass and take my shoes off or even here you know and well I can't do it too much here because the fire ends <laughs> <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll um, listen to music or read spend time with my girls uh, they get kind of annoyed because I'm just just like I love you so much I just need you to know that like, I just need you to know that you're the most important thing on this planet that we need to take advantage of now. Mm -hmm. Like, don't assume you have tomorrow. And that gets me emotional, but it's like, you just love them so much. Mm -hmm. And you're just so thankful for the time that you have. And uh, that's what I do is spend time with my girls, Lauren and Brooke. And uh, right. Writing really helps. Mm -hmm. I get a lot of purpose now, a sense of purpose from trying to keep medics alive mm. and trying to keep medics, nurses, paramedics, police, firemen, I'm trying to keep them alive. Uh, I heard back from someone who read my book, a paramedic in Detroit, and she reported to me that in the last couple of years, they had 10 medics kill themselves mm. up there. And, um, you know, I know my ER, we had a doctor that killed himself a couple of years ago. Um, mm. That's my purpose now. Mm -hmm. Is keep them alive. Mm -hmm. you know, I want to keep. I want to make sure that that leadership takes takes us on, takes on this responsibility. And because we're not going to do it, we don't want to be seen as weak or mm -hmm. or, or uh, that needs to change too. Right? It's not weak to get help. Mm -hmm. You're strong if you're getting help because then you're you're prolonging your your uh, your vitality and your work, and you're going to keep your family unit alive. Mm. and thriving if you if you deal with it mm -hmm. and um, 
If you could go back to your 20 year old self, what would you tell yourself? I would say you need to, if I could, (laughs) if I could walk in and say, um, Dennis, you need to realize that when Danielle Reyna Reynosa died, she may have still died if her parents had her in a seatbelt. She may have died three days later, crossing the street, getting hit by a car. She may have died a year later of leukemia. Do not assume that these folks have a long life ahead of them and that it was shattered by this horrific event. I don't know if that makes sense, Conrad, but I would say that my counselor, she said, where did you learn this idea that life is fair? Hmm. You know, where do you see that in nature? And she said, I want you to think about one event. And of course it was Danielle. And she says, and I want you to write about it. I want you to tell me how it makes you think about how you feel about yourself, about safety, um, your relationships, uh, trust, interactions, intimacy. You know, she listed like six or seven things and she says, do at least a page. And uh, I was bitter at the time and I didn't think I would get a page, but I said I would try. It ended up being three pages and uh, then she went through it line by line with me the following time. And she said, I want you to read it to me and then we're going to read it again. And I want you to highlight what I tell you to highlight. So we went through, she says, I like that. I like that. I like that. She says, what you just highlighted are stuck points. Mm. There are things that you believe about this event that are not based on fact. And of course that irritated me, mm. right? And, uh, and she warned me ahead of time that I would be angry <laughs> in this treatment. And uh, one of them was if she had her seatbelt on, she would have made it, mm. you know? And she says, how do you know? How do you know that the force wouldn't have been enough that she still would have died? It's weird, Conrad, but I could actually feel after that, as we went through that, that, that session, I could feel like almost like weight falling off my shoulders. She says, what do you believe? Was that based on emotion or was that based on fact? (laughs) I had to be honest, right? Mm -hmm. I says that was all emotion. Mm -hmm. She said, you were rightly upset. You were rightly sad. I mean, so much so that I, I cut out her and I took and her little brother. We put this on his uh, shirt when he was standing there beside his sister. And then he took it off and it dropped on the floor and I stuck it in the journal. Hmm. That was 1998. Hmm. So she said, those all emotion. And uh, the facts are, you don't know Mm -hmm. if she would have survived. So just that tiny little thing I would say to that old Dennis, like, don't go there. You don't know anything about what should have been, what could have been. It's not, it's not. I think that's how Peggy and Sandy and the others that have been doing it for 40 years, I think that they're masters of that. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that they're masters of that ability. But they are so compassionate to the worst. Even after 40 years, she'll sit beside somebody and take mm-hmm. time and brush their hair as they're passing on. It's just remarkable. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. I thank you for sharing your story and for the work that you did over those years. Uh, the last thing I want you, I'd like you to do is just speak to that paramedic, that uh, emergency room nurse, that doctor who's uh, in the middle of it and they're not sure if they want to keep on going. Talk to them and what, what should they do? What can they do next to get to a better place in their head? I would say I would preemptively, I would preemptively get a counselor. Hmm. Like I wish that it was a, I wish that it was in the books for these departments, that it's a requirement. They have a counselor on staff who quarter, maybe even once a month calls in everybody at different times and you have 30 minutes and everyone's required to go. And there's a sign in sheet show that you were there. Now, whether you stay the 30 minutes is up to you, but the opportunity for you to talk and say what's bothering you, because Conrad, how amazing would it have been if in 1998, I could have walked in to a counselor and said, you know, Danielle, she, she, she would have survived if her parents had just put her in a seatbelt. Mm-hmm. Well, then the counselor could have said, well, how do you know she was still would have survived? Mm-hmm. Challenges you. And you're like, well, I don't know that. Like, oh, you know, something simple like that. So I would preemptively, if a department is not going to take responsibility and, and ownership on taking care of their people's brains and their hearts, then I would say preemptively get a counselor that not a not some you know buddy down at the bar, hmm. but some a professional who can actually help you. And you can tell anything too, and it is legally going to stay there mm-hmm. forever. And just talk, say what happened on Thursday. Imagine that, Conrad, if you could go in and talk about what happened on Thursday instead of what happened back in 1998, 20 years ago, mm-hmm. that's been haunting you for 20 years. How sad is that? Mm-hmm. That, that, that? That's my story. How sad is that? Like, I wish I had had the courage to get a counselor back then. And that's what I would say to the medics and the nurses and whatnot. Have the courage to get a counselor, someone that you can talk to, you know, about these things. Um, yeah, that's, that's what I would, hmm. I really would. I, I, cause it's gonna, it's gonna increase your, your vitality and your work. It's gonna keep your home safe. Because when you think about it, the one thing God gave you was your kiddos hmm. and your wife. That's your responsibility. Mm-hmm. You love saving people from fires. You love saving people from uh, hostage situations. You love taking doing CPR on somebody and bringing them back. But at the end of the day, the one thing, the most important thing is that God gave you those kids because he knew that you were going to be the best thing for mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. And if you're not keeping yourself sharp, if you're not keeping yourself mentally okay, you're letting all of them down. You can't blame anybody but yourself. And I blame myself for many of the, the faults with uh, my marriage and, and whatnot that I didn't get help when I did. And I was 
morose and quiet and sitting alone in my room and, and angry and testy. Um, you know, hmm. I, I failed, you know, I failed them. And though my girls always had love and, and, and the way I describe in the book, Conrad, and I'm sorry if this is getting long, but, um, the, the one joy that I had every day was between, was between the time I got home and the time, because when I got home, I would get my girls their bath. I would brush their hair because their mother uh, worked the opposites than I did. I would brush their hair, do the teeth, tuck them into bed, read a story, have prayers, kisses, walk to the door, turn around. We call them kiss blows, kiss blows, kiss blows. And then they're doing the same back and forth and it goes on for a few seconds. And then I close the door and then I turn around and I take a couple steps and then I look at my bed, which I know is going to haunt me all night long. Mm. And I just figuratively close the door on the only happiness that I was going to have that day. Mm. So, you know, I'm sorry I got off subject. but uh, no, no worries. Hmm. Well, this has been a, a, a really fascinating discussion. I want to uh, let us know, let people know where they can find your book, how they can, you know, how they can contact you, things like that. Sure. The book is on Amazon. Um, so when you put in clear, make sure you put in the exclamation mark. Otherwise you're going to get a bunch of lotions and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> page upon page of lotions, or you could put in clear exclamation mark and then my name. Um, you'll notice the cover. It's got uh, AFib, uh, which is uh, death, uh, but survivable hmm. if you if you defibrillate. And that's why clear and then normal sinus rhythm afterwards on the cover. Um, it's got many meanings, which you'll discover when you read the book, hmm. um, everything that it means. But uh, hmm. And then as far as uh, email, um, you can do dennis.firstrespondermw at gmail.com awesome well thank you for your copy of the book I had a nice uh, signed copy so thank you for that I really appreciate that it's been no thank you so much for this opportunity and I just I, I want to take this time to, if I could just to say I just am so thankful for the, all of the work and effort you put into this documentary that's coming out and I I cannot wait to see it because I, I think it's absolutely perfect timing and uh, it's going to make a huge impact and um, Conrad, you need to know that what you did, all of the work, all of the labor, raising the funds, traveling everywhere, sleepless nights, staying in sorry hotels with the rowdy neighbors, everything that you did is gonna save lives. It's gonna save medics. And that's very appreciated. Dennis, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for the book that you wrote and for your work that you're doing to help first responders and those in emergency medicine thrive and to prosper. I know it's an important subject and thank you for the work that you are doing. And thank you for watching and listening tonight to this program. If you feel so led and want to help support the work that we're doing for first responders, there's a link below in the show notes where you can make a contribution toward our film and toward this podcast. We really appreciate all the support that has been given to us already and for the support that you can provide us. We would greatly appreciate it. And if you feel so led, please leave us a review. Let us know what you think about the show and how we can improve uh, in what we're doing. 
Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you again soon right here on PTSD 911 Presents.